something. I think I might be on to something. When I uh, conceived of this little series, it's very much my series because it must be my age or something. It's, it's sort of what's on my mind at the moment. What, um, how do we work it out when God's ways make no sense? Um, the reason, one of the reasons I, I think I was onto something is that this week, uh, one of our friends in ministry way up north, one Andrew Hamilton, who some of you will know because he's been around for ages, posted on his blog site. And uh, I'm actually going to ask him if I can use this as amusing, but one of the things he says is the people of Israel are those who will struggle with God. As I read the story of Jacob again recently, I was reminded that as a church, the new Israel, that's us, we inherit the identity and we too are those who struggle with God. The choice is how to struggle. How to struggle. And I just thought, hmm, we're on to something. Hamo's just posted that this week, so we'll see where where that takes us. Um, Some of us feel a real kindredness, don't we, with the Psalm 13 life. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear this pain or the pain of others in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? But somehow he gets to one of those great biblical words, but and however, are two key words. In spite of this, But God, however, he somehow finds himself in a place where he says, I trusted in your steadfast love. But I want to acknowledge today that in my belief, my conviction is that we need to allow a lot of deep water to go under the bridge before we get to, but I trusted in your steadfast love. And so, Ellen, it's absolutely fine. You can go off like a packet of crackers. Uh, We can cope and he can cope. This morning, though, primarily, we're going to have a look at um, Jonah. Can you just flick that back, um, Jace, just so we can get the page number? I can get the page number because Jonah's really hard to find. He's in the Minor Prophets and he's only only four verses. So it's page 752. That's just a big help when you're standing up here thinking about a few other things. Thank you, there he is. Um, I want to do a little exercise to start with. And it might be good if I could find the beginning as well. There we go. Um, Life with God is like life in a box. If you just uh, consider your life today, where whatever's happening, where you've come from, what's going on, what's concerning you, that's your life. And you could kind of describe it... I was actually thinking about this here. This this little thought came while I was looking at that about a week ago, or two weeks ago now. Time flies. A beautiful place. But I thought about a box. And your life, you could fit into a box like this. You could say, there's my life, it's sort of in there and this is what's happening at the moment, this is what's going on. But see, there's another life going on as well and that's, that's actually the life of God. 
what God's doing and has done in the world. So you and your life fits into a life as a Christian in which you have a relationship with God. So there's your life and then there's this life of God that your life is operating in somewhere there. So I've shown this many times. I'll just explain it again. Here we have this notion of just time along the bottom. There's us ticking along in time. And then in history, um, God chose to send his son to die and rise again and create a process where, in a sense, time began again, but in a whole new way. Eternity, the life of God revealed and fulfilled, came to earth in the person of Jesus. And in a sense, time began in a whole new way where a third of the Psalms, which are lamenting, broken heartedness crying out uh, Jeremiah lamentations the weeping prophet um, a third of scripture is is not about this fulfilled state it's about a wounded place where we're crying out uh, to God so here's just time here's the coming of Jesus he here's the age that Jesus began why this age continues on, tick, 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 and then one day Jesus will return. So that's a box in which you and your life lives somewhere between this and this and somewhere between this and this. And as I was sitting looking at that mountain out there in Jerusalem, I was sitting on the Mount of Olives there with Joe and Adrian and Jan and others, Um, it dawned on me that some of us view God in a sense as though he was dead. Now, none of this is meant pejoratively. I'm just pushing the boundaries of things so that you get the idea. And when I say dead, I don't mean that when Jesus came, he was dead, but we kind of focus on the death of Jesus. We focus on Jesus' suffering, um, the penitential life. His life was given as a sacrifice. And so we think, oh, Jesus died and and you know i'm you know i'm pretty lousy and i probably deserve to die and you know but he died for me and he died and took away my sin and he died you know some of us kind of live a bit like that and so we live very much in this coming of jesus and and his suffering and sacrifice others of us have this notion that when jesus came it, it probably really didn't do that much and the experiences of our lives tend to build up that sort of repository of what what does he do anyway really Um, and then every now and then someone enthusiastically tells us something amazing that's happened like they got healed and we go oh yeah that happens to Joe it doesn't happen to me so he's sort of distant yeah we believe it but he's distant and for some of us as we get older he gets more distant because we rack up more more stuff and he gets more and more Distance. So this advent, this coming of Christ and God in Christ, didn't really change much. Others see God as dynamic. We go to Israel, we visit the places, we get healed. Um, we have an expectation that the kingdom, the rule and reign of God, you'll hear my enthusiasm here, 
uh, the rule and reign of God is actually broken into now and we can have an authentic uh, relationship with God which is both about his presence and his patience with us but also his power in our lives and so some people are always saying, oh, you know, let's go and pray for the dead. Let's go and go down the beach and we'll pray that people will come to faith and uh, go on prayer walks. And, and, and there's this sense that there's a real dynamic and we're trying to bring the heaven to earth in our, in our faith. That's terrific. I love that. Other people have a view that's sort of a dynamite thing. Uh, there's a lot of this in Israel, actually, where people are making great financial commitments to Israel because they're trying to promote the second coming of Christ. And so what they're actually doing is investing money. They're breeding the red heifer, um, which are all symbols. Uh, they're, they're buying land in an attempt to sort of build the temple and sacrifice the red heifer because the Bible says that when those things happen, then Jesus is going to come back. So people are living, talking about, you know, the millennium and the millennial age and what's happening and looking at the signs of the time. So some people, it's dynamite. They're looking for the dynamite. When's that going to come? Most of us are somewhere in there. Where are you? Where would you place you in there? I said to Cherie, our administrator who did this, I said, where am I, Cherie? And she said, oh, I reckon you're about... There. <laughs> I disagree with her, but that's okay. doesn't really matter. You know, when you're living your life inside this whole dead, dynamic, distance, dynamite, now and not yet kind of place, waiting, it's not hard to argue that the Christian life can be hard to make sense of. How you're going with a Psalm 13 type of life may determine how you're believing and acting toward God. Your life might inform your behaviour. What am I to do with needless suffering? How is it that so many people live such disadvantaged lives? How come I got dealt this hand and someone else got dealt that hand? What am I to do with all the conflict and strife around me? What am I to do with the conflict and strife in me, in my family, workplaces, in my friendships? Uh, where is God in the plethora of hurts and disappointments that we see and experience every day? These and, thousands, and thousands of other questions swirl in and around our Christian experience, don't they? What then is your question for God. Do you have a question? Well, what about this? Ellen, well, what about my friend? In this series, we're going to consider how three Bible characters approach God when life makes no sense. We're going to look at what they actually do. And then in the final week, we're going to summarise with a few suggestions, maybe some sort of a pathway to resolution and we're going to take seriously the purpose and power of distress and lament in scripture because it's everywhere in the teaching of the bible and what it does to help us fall towards god or fall away from god because that's what tends to happen doesn't it and today we're going to actually look at someone who i love he's me in the flesh who actually falls more away from god 
but Jonah leaves us in a position where, where there's still a real hope for Jonah and, uh, and we kind of have that for him. So in four talks, we can't nail everything down, but we'll look at a few imponderables and I hope to connect you through scripture with the fact that your experience and mine is no surprise to God. It is no surprise to God. Who We get a clue in Jesus, don't we, that he loved us enough to give his son who would die, who'd suffer in a cruel, cruel way, in a cruel, cruel world. Emma asked me yesterday, she said, you know, what's something, and I got on a blather as I generally do, but she said, what's something that struck you in, in, um, in this trip to, to Israel? One thing that really struck me was how essential it was for Jesus to literally live most of his life in the wilderness because he wouldn't have lasted five minutes in Jerusalem. They just would have killed him way quicker than they did. They just would have killed him. Well, hello. He's one of our fellow travellers. Lovely to see you. They just would have killed him. They would have killed him. So um, here's the thing. Um, we're not the first people to wonder at God's ways. So Jonah's our first character. We're just going to look at him for a few minutes. Um, you remember he's the guy who swallowed, was swallowed by the whale. I was going to say swallowed the whale. Some people might think he did swallow the whale. Remember that Jonah was told to proclaim God's call to repentance. So God told Jonah, go and tell the Ninevites to repent. They were pagan and instead of going essentially to Baghdad, he runs to Mallorca in Spain. Heads in the opposite direction. A storm wails and Jonah declares that he's caused it by his disobedience. So he suggests they throw him overboard. They're incredibly honourable sailors, these guys. They do everything they can not to throw him overboard. But ultimately, he says that's the answer to the problem. So they do reluctantly throw him overboard and he's swallowed by a huge fish. Three days later, he's spat out like garbage. <coughs> that wasn't very nice. Indigestible. Onto the beach and reluctantly goes the 2,000-odd kilometres in the direction that he was told to go in the first place and deliver God's message to the hateful pagan Ninevites. And the Ninevites are supernaturally convicted of their sin and their rejection of God, supernaturally. They repent... Every one of them. Now, if you say, oh, yeah, right. Um, if you've ever been around missionaries who've been around revival, they will tell you that one of the marks of revival is not, oh, happy, we all love God. It's this incredible sense of conviction of sin comes over. In one case, a whole capital city in one of the islands, one of the islands of uh, Fiji, a whole city was just overcome by grief and lament at sin. So it's not unprecedented or experienced by people Cheryl and I know. The point is, though, that as they are convicted and they repent, Jonah is furious. Furious. God is not playing the game as Jonah expects or believes in his deepest self is right. 
in Jonah's mind, God is wrong and deeply wrong because these pagan Ninevites presented the biggest um, physical, material, military threat to Israel. It was just madness to spare the Ninevites. Madness. Insane. Now, you may not know that Jonah was actually a prophet before the book of Jonah. And we find him in 2 Kings 14. He gets a little little, uh, spatter in 2 Kings 14, where he actually prophesied uh, the restoration of Israel under an evil king, Jeroboam 2. So, evil king, but still God declares Israel will be restored. In other words, the goodies won and the baddies got smashed. Thumbs up. The goodies won and the baddies got smashed. It's on code. It's good news. It gets the big Jonah tick. It's the way the world's supposed to work and the way it's supposed to be. But Nineveh are the baddies. They deserve to die in Jonah's book, but God spares them. That's off code. No, no. Bad news. Big cross. Jonah has a view of God that belies God's ultimate purpose. What was God trying to do? Did God care more about Nineveh's repentance or did God care about what he'd set out to do in Jonah? In Jonah. In you, through the circumstances of what might be happening. If you look at Jonah, you'll find the first chapter is about the repentance of Nineveh. Then there are three chapters on the formation of Jonah. Three chapters on the formation of Jonah. Three to one. Jonah makes us wonder, is what God wants to do in Jonah more important than what God wants Jonah to do in his name. Why is Jonah resistant to God? Why is he resistant to his formation? Because the way Jonah sees things, God's ways make no sense. And they're unbelievably risky. They're bad management. And they could upset the whole nation. Look at how Jonah responds when things don't go the way he should. So there's the thesis. I've given you the thesis. Now, here's the human response. This is where I come in, folks, so you can see where you fit. Where I come in when God's ways make no sense. Look at what Jonah does when God's ways make no sense. Jonah says, I'm not going to talk to you then. This is me and God. Maybe, maybe. Why bother talking to you? He stops the conversation. Chapter one, verse, uh, chapter one, verse two and three. Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of God. I'll flee from your presence. Zero conversation. I'll just resist and run. Resist and run. It's so fascinating leading a church. Some people, something happens 
and you go, here it is, resist and run. You may have done it. You may be here because you resisted and ran somewhere else. These are the things that human beings do. Don't feel too bad about it. You're in good company. Remember, why did he resist and run? The two kings scenario, goodies win, baddies lose, the prophet delivers the message, the goodies are secured, the baddies lose, and Jonah's personal rating soar. That's the way it's meant to be in the movies and in my life. But, you know, particularly for you business guys, it's tough, and girls, um, you know, to even consider that possibility of Nineveh is just dumb. It's bad business. We shouldn't do bad business. You know, what would the board say? What about the risk? It's a strategic disaster. What are the financial implications? Compliance? I can't sell Nineveh to the compliance guys. You know, security? What do you mean security? We're blowing our security. We may as well give them all our computer code. You know, it's, it's, it's madness to the business guys this sort of stuff. Jonah's fixed view of himself was as the prudent manager. God's mercy on Nineveh wasn't in Jonah's script. It made no sense. So what's not in your script as you think of life? Not in my script. I'm not talking to you. It's not happening. What's in your script when God's ways make no sense? Resist and run? That makes sense. There's no point. By that I mean, I don't mean no point sharing your stuff. Well, why bother sharing? There's no point sharing. Jonah showed no interest in sharing his struggles with God. No point. There's no point sharing my struggles with you, God. You don't understand. I won't speak to you. I won't share my stuff with you. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare, went on board to go with him to Tarshish. You get it? Tarshish, you know, like the other way. Tarshish uh, from the presence of the Lord. A great storm blew up. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. No doubt Jonah's disappointments had exhausted him. Disappointment is exhausting, isn't it? Resisting and running is exhausting. He falls asleep. He's emotionally spent. You wonder, don't you, does emotional exhaustion connect to disappointment, connected to disappointment, resonate with you? I'm just exhausted because I'm just so disappointed and I'm just exhausted. So I'm just sleeping down here in the hold of the ship. Have you stopped talking to God in your disappointment? And what, if I said, if you think about the space between you and God right now, what's it feel like? The space. Hi. I think I know you, but I'm not sure if you're safe. What does it feel like? Do you really like me? Do I really like you? Or at least my imagined image of you. What's it feel like? Sorry. We banned this uh, word around our kitchen. Sorry. Pass the salt, please. Sorry. 
you know, remember? Jonah's sorry, but he's not really sorry after his belly of the fish experience. He's sorry. (laughs) I'll prove it to you. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 2. Lovely psalm. There's this lovely sort of song, poem in Jonah chapter 2. In verse 2 it says, I called to the Lord out of my distress. You notice Jonah declares his distress, but not, but not his sin. I'm so distressed. Well, well, have you thought of repenting of your sin, Jonah? Jonah declares his distress rather than confesses his sin of resisting and running from God. It's sin. And it will not pay a wage that bears fruit. It just leads us asleep in the bottom of the boat at best, liking God less and less. Verse 3, you cast me into the deep. No, I didn't. You threw yourself into the deep. If Jonah had repented, one assumes the storm would have stopped and he would have gone to Nineveh. Verse 4, then I said, you have driven me away from your sight. You have driven me away from your sight. No, Jonah fled from God's presence in the midst of his circumstance that made no sense. He resisted and ran. But to Jonah, somehow his resistance is somehow God's fault, isn't it? Somehow this is God's fault. You put me with all these people that have made me awful. Finally, Jonah's loyalty and sacrifice are according to his reasoning and solely on his terms. In fact, what he's done is he's made God an idol. (laughs) And he said, if you turn up in the way I want you to turn up, then, well, I'll be famous and I'll make you famous too. But if you don't, that's that. I'm sorry, he says to God, you don't really understand my position, my responsibilities or my hurt or my plans for my life that you've messed up. I'm sorry, but I'm not really sorry. I want to be friends with God, but I have no intention of hating my ways enough to invite a whole new formation at God's hands. Larry Crabb says, confession designed to restore God's blessing is not repentance, it's a management technique. (laughs) Right thing, eventually, does the right thing, wrong heart. You know, Jesus tells a parable about this, about two sons. One says yes and doesn't do it. The other says no and does. Jonah delivers his message to Nineveh. He did the right thing, but he certainly didn't have the right attitude. He still believes the right tactical move was to annihilate Nineveh. God was wrong, and in his heart, he's still resisting and running. But, you know, we do all sorts of right things with absolute backward motives, don't we? Like uh, we volunteer to help because we want to be approved of. We love our wives to avoid conflict. We keep quiet to avoid conflict. We tell lies because they'll massage things and we'll get the best outcome if I don't really tell the truth. I mean, who doesn't do that in some way or hasn't done it? So Jonah and you and I are just the same. Right thing, wrong heart. And this is the one that concerns me the most as I reflected on this passage, that the hardest challenge for me is that Jonah really resisted and ran 
from a God that he didn't know. A God that he didn't know. Each of us has a journey with God that leads us to where we are today. It's interesting that Jonah's dad's name was Amittai. It means faithfulness and it suggested that God's presence was one of a family of faithfulness, spiritual faithfulness, a Jewish family. And uh, they were formed, so God was like a family God. Jonah had seen God restore Israel fortunes even under an evil king, Jeroboam too. He was a triumphant God, a family God and a triumphant God. And when he was told to prophesy repentance to Nineveh, the triumphant God became the incomprehensible God. And then when Jonah is spat out as garbage, because that's what that word actually means, garbage onto the beach, the incomprehensible God becomes the intolerable God. And then in chapter 4, verse 3, after Nineveh, Repents. So this is after Nineveh has repented. Jonah says, I knew you were gracious, merciful, patient, loving, relenting. Now I just want to die. Kill me now. By the way, they're crushing sin and death next door. Just in case you wanted to know what that was. They're putting sin to death. What a beautiful net. That's what it sounds like, if ever you've wondered. Pop. Another one bites the dead. So he says, I knew you were gracious and merciful and patient and loving and relenting. Now I just want to die. Kill me. (laughs) So here's the thing. God then says to Jonah, he says, Jonah, Jonah, is your anger towards me fair? You see, God is introducing himself to Jonah in God's incomprehensible, intolerable place. That's when he starts to introduce himself, when he's intolerable and incomprehensible. God says, should I not show pity or concern in your translation for Nineveh? What the word means is, Should I not have a tear in my eye for Nineveh? Jonah, it's the same word, Jonah has a tear in his eye for the plant that grows up around him, gives him shade and then dies. He has a tear in his eye and God says, shouldn't I have a tear in my eye for Nineveh? God introduces himself in the intolerable incomprehensible place. I'll leave you with that. Lord, as we think about the incomprehensible, intolerable places for us, we think about resisting and running. I won't talk to you. Sorry. I think about the tear in your, in your eye. Uh, for us. And your desire that we have a tear in our eye. Uh, for others. 
and that we impute to you all sorts of motives. Lord, what's in our box today? Where are we? Where would our dot be? Lord, bless your people. Reveal yourself to them as you already have in Christ who loves us so much, lays down everything for us, includes us totally and gives us hope and a pathway. In Jesus' name, amen.